What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And in today's episode, we are going to learn why your chances at becoming an elite team will be severely limited if you're not mirroring your customer base. The person that is going to connect the dots for us in this conversation is joining us today. She's the co-author of The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Boop, the co-creator <laughs> of the Deaf Model for DEIB Messaging. She's a former filmmaker, a current conference speaker. She's a fireside chatter. She's a YouTuber. And she's a lot of other things that have ER at the end of it, including the founder of Kim Clark Communications. Kim, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, I'm looking forward to another hard-hitting, hard-hitting, is that the right word? Another fun conversation, and we probably won't go as deep as we typically do, but really looking forward to the chat. I know that there's a lot of stuff about your background that's super interesting. Why don't you get the listeners up to speed on some of the stuff that I might have left out that you feel is important for them to understand and know about you? What I do, as you mentioned, it's really this intersection of diversity, equity, inclusion work and communications. So I'm a firm believer that all the DEI strategy and efforts that teams are putting together and implementing cannot be successful without communications. So how did I get here? Why am I so passionate about this? And I'm very urgent about this work. And some of it is informed by my personal identities as well. I am a woman, a cisgender woman. I am a gay woman. I am a mom of two kids with disabilities. And I also have Native American heritage on my mother's side, Muscogee Nation. And so with those identities, I also have the privilege of having white skin and having the privileges that come with that. I am college educated. I don't have any disabilities. And so with that, and I have height privilege, I have a lower voice privilege, all of these things inform my experience and my ability to influence. Now, when it comes to the work, I've run internal communication departments for over, oh my gosh, 10, 15 years. And I was in-house running global teams at brands you've probably heard of, PayPal, GoDaddy, GitHub, for example. And while I was running those teams and, and putting together internal communication strategies for the global team, I was obviously paying attention to what was going on outside of our walls from the social topics and the context and the crisis situations that were happening. And I started working with, who's now my mentor, who's been a corporate diversity trainer for 40 years. She's been involved in everything. And as a black woman who's gay, who's also a minister, she's influenced me through her education, her work, her talks, coaching with me one-on-one -on -one to help me understand the role and responsibility of communicators, of language, when it comes to delivering successful outcomes for everybody in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I have this 
side of me that understands being a part of a dominant group. And I also have this part of me that is informed by being marginalized. So it's very situational. And I bring both in when I work with clients to help them see the sides that I have personal experience with. And then I bring in team members who have the variety of experiences that I don't have in order to round out the experiences for clients. There is one thing that I want you to expand a little bit on. You mentioned a number of times certain areas or aspects about your background and your life that give you privilege. And I'd like you to expand on the concept of privilege because oftentimes when we mention the word, there are segments of the population that will recoil at that word and say that's not a thing. Why is it important that we recognize that most, if not all of us, have some sort of privilege, especially if we're in the Western world? Can you share a little bit about why the concept of privilege needs to be understood, reframed, and accepted for us to move about the world in an appropriate way? When I talk about privilege, what I'm speaking to is how things have been designed for me that I don't even have to think about it. So one kind of quiz to think about where we have privileges is to say, okay, explain yourself or how do you describe yourself, what your identities are. Most people who do not have disabilities do not include that they do not have disabilities because the world around them has actually been created for them in a way to not even notice that they don't have disabilities. And so there's more of a devaluing and dehumanization for people with disabilities because they're seen as, oh, you can't do the same things as me. It's a comparison game that ends up in an othering space. Privilege is successful by not being acknowledged. (laughs) Acknowledging it, talking about it, being more aware of it. And that look goes into data and understanding how other people are having a different experience. I have my limited life experience. There's no way for me to know all the things. There's no way I'm going to not make a mistake when I say the wrong thing. But because my experience is limited to my own personal experience and it's not the experience of anyone else, there's, that's where the collaboration comes in, where we can learn from each other. And so while people will recoil, as you mentioned to that term, it's just situational. Privilege in in one room for me as a gay woman is where here my identity as a gay woman is not really the topic of conversation. It's me as a diversity, equity, inclusion, communications expert, right? So I have privilege in this space in that way. But if I were to shift over to another webinar or another conversation where we're talking about marriage equality or gender affirming healthcare, standing up for transgender people's rights, et cetera, I am now second class. I am less valued. I have less power. It actually is, it's more of the, of people who are heterosexual who are standing up as allies that are going to be talking to other allies who have the power. So in one one area, I have power. In another area, I don't have power. But understanding and learning where I do have that power and that influence to be not just an ally, but actually risk some social capital in order to want to dismantle systems that are not working for anybody. But we have to recognize that being white has its privileges and, and in other areas, it doesn't. Understanding where that power is and using it for the greater good is a positive thing, not a negative thing. When you think about your career and you think about the game-changing realizations that you've had throughout your career, what's the game-changing realization that really shifted your perspective 
and your ability to build a high-performing team. I have led many teams even before I finished. I, I have the privilege of a college education and a master's. And before I was even done with my undergraduate degree, I was already running teams. Uh, I had 10 people reporting to me and I wasn't even completely done with school yet. So in managing teams over time, one of the things that I really look for is a balance across the team. So I would be more of the personality type of vision, of teaching, of creative ideas, engaging those kinds of conversation, big thoughts, leadership kind of stuff. So if I put a whole bunch of people that are similar in that way all around me, I am F. If not in, I am not in good shape. All of us are going to be just talking about wonderful ideas. So this is not to get compartmentalized as diversity of thought. I do not mean that. There is a professional expertise that you can bring with personal identities and personal lived experiences that enrich the team. As I was integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion into my communication strategies, it was very tested in 20, uh, June 2016, when the Pulse tragedy happened in Orlando, where there was a mass shooting at a LGBTQ plus dance club. It happened during the weekend. And on Monday morning, I was, there was a, I was working at GoDaddy at the time. So I was an in-house communicator running a global team, internal communications team. And I was flooded with emails saying, we're angry from a variety of employees from all over the world. We don't know what to do with this. We can't work. We're very distracted. We're, we're grieving. We don't know what to do. And so I rapidly put together basically a virtual vigil. And I called in my mentor to help me put together this virtual vigil. I said, everybody go book some conference rooms so you can be together in person. And the rest of us will be all remote connected. And we had HR involved as well. But basically that session allowing people to have the space to talk in a workplace environment. This is long before the murder of George Floyd. That was a tested moment that I realized that all the work that we had done in putting diversity, equity, and inclusion in place, building the relationships, having the technology ready, having the content there, there was a permission for people to access me and access my team and say, we need help. We need direction. And we were able to respond very quickly in a meaningful way. So it wasn't just a post saying we acknowledge the Pulse tragedy and it's so sad. No, we were able to meet the need in that moment and listen to what people, what employees needed in a workplace environment, recognizing it was something that happened outside our doors and had nothing to do with our work, but had everything to do with people who were personally and, and professionally impacted by the incident. That was absolutely a game changer. And it elicited how I was structuring relationships and building my team moving forward. I want to drill in a little bit because it's a really human example about how something can happen externally and you need to do more than just have a perfunctory statement. You need to actually make it real in the, in, in, in the halls that you walk in. How can organizations and leaders be more intentional about doing that sort of stuff? Is there a framework that they need to be thinking about where you can go beyond just the perfunctory statement that that's going to have an impact on the business? At that time, there was a tremendous amount of involvement by our organization in a lot of 
social topics proactively. There's a great partnership between legal, HR, communications, marketing, et cetera. And we were very proactive around pay equity, for example, standing firm that at the time there was a lot of conversation that had begun around gender neutral bathrooms and at tech locations. And we were standing firm that it was absolutely something that needed to happen so everyone could be safe within the workplace. And so we were very proactive in that work in a, an external standpoint. And internally, I reflected that through embedding DEI within the communication strategy. So building the relationships with employee resource groups and he, keeping a very close tabs on the impulse of, of the employees. We did employee engagement surveys like a lot of people, but we didn't put the emphasis necessarily on the participation. It was more about the cadence of the communications and taking actions on what we heard. That's what builds trust. It's not, hey, we had 93% participation. Here's our themes and we never talk about it again. So it's the proof points and following up with actions that are actually meaningful to employees and having those listening. That's what's the saying? We have two ears and one mouth because we need to be listening twice as much. And so when we do that, we're able to meet the needs of folks. And once we, when we are co-creating what the channels look like, what the events that are needed, then we're able to meet those needs in, in and we're able to pivot when we need to, when we need to upgrade or, or downgrade, but it's really about meeting the needs of employees and meeting the needs of managers in order to support their employees. Because especially after the murder of George Floyd, we've returned back into a workplace where now we talk about race and we've been ill-equipped, under-resourced, under-trained to have these kinds of conversations that need to be had. There's a lot of interesting things about what you just said that I think we can expand on. Here's what I gathered from what you just described. In the day-to-day -day workspace, you're presented with a number of choices. You have the choice to be transparent or not. You have mm -hmm. the choice to be communicative or not. You have the choice to be treating the workplace as a place where it's only work stuff or it's the whole person stuff, and you have a choice on which lane that you pick. And then you have the choice between just listening or you have the choice to listen and then act. Each of those choices creates the type of culture that define how people are going to show up. You've obviously instructed or at least coached organizations and leaders to go one particular way. Why is it important for us to pick the option that is on the side of doing more versus doing less? It may be not necessarily a quantity thing, but more of a quality thing. So we learned through the global pandemic that we are human beings first as employees. We are not cogs and machines. Our mental health, what's going on in our family, if somebody had COVID, for example, that was all very real. Many of us worked from our homes. Those of us who have jobs that have that kind of uh, privilege, there's that word again, <laughs> some of us did. And if we were to ignore all of the ecosphere that employees are in, then we lost those employees, basically, because we can't be asked to be productive at 100% and that this is a place of work and only focus on work when there's over almost 600 anti-LGBTQ plus bills and us walking around in public is far more unsafe, especially for transgender and transgender people of color. There's higher unemployment of people with disabilities. There is voter suppression and other issues that are impacting people of color in a variety of way, ways, looking at anti-Asian hate, for example. There's the gun violence. So there's these things that are going on outside of the world that impact us. 
because we're people. And if you're going to ignore that, if you're going to ignore the political division that is happening at the context, you're missing the point that your company is a microcosm of the larger society. We are people who are roaming around in the world and we come into work and we cannot just check that stuff off. Some of us do that in order to survive because it's just too much of what's going on. I just want to be able to show up at my job. We want that, but acknowledging that there is an ecosphere that we are a part of, that our companies are a microcosm of the larger society and what's going on outside our walls is absolutely conversations and dynamics that happen on the inside. Taking control of that, taking space for that, and taking positioning as organizations, that's where the depth model comes in that we introduced in our book, The Conscious Communicator, that helps organizations own their particular lane. They don't have to do all the things, but they do have to do their thing and then find a way to support their employees in a very broad sense to allow them to be the whole human beings as they are. Because the more and more organizations can get involved and start eliminating the barriers and the problems that we're dealing with on the outside and being influential and impactful in that way, the more and more we are able to authentically show up 100% as employees, as productive, innovative employees that we wish to be. We don't want to just survive at work. We want to thrive, but we need the organization and leadership's help. There are going to be potentially people that are going to be listening to this conversation and they're going to hear what you just said and they're going to step back and think what Kim is describing sounds like too much work. It's going to be too difficult. I don't really see the business impact of being that sort of workplace. Can you pull together why that sort of thinking is really damaging to the business outcomes that you might be trying to achieve as a leader within your organization? I can easily say you're going to have a tremendous amount of unwanted attrition and have very a big difficulty in attracting, especially a wide variety and diverse set of candidates to your company if you're not acknowledging and owning your space and your role and your impact on social topics and providing a broad sense of impactful, helpful, meaningful support for your employees as whole human beings. So I could say that and I could also talk about Gen Z coming into the workforce where they're so beyond this conversation and there's already five generations within the workplace. So we're all trying to figure out like how to talk to each other and how to benefit from each of our generations. But there's a whole conversation we can get into around products and services that you're missing on new, missing out on new markets and revenue generation and all the different ways. If you don't learn more about all of this, you're actually unintentionally cutting out parts of communities that could be your customers if you were to embed DEI into your work. The list is very long. A lot of DEI practitioners don't get into the business case because it's been proven by data for years. So if you need convincing on a business case with revenue generation, product and service innovation, then you're just looking for ways to escape actually embedding DEI when it's all right here before you, DEI is already happening. You look at culture, it happens with or without us within the workplace. And right now, DEI is not organic. It, is, it needs to be intentional and strategic because what's happening if we think that DEI should just, we should all just get along. Absolutely, that's what we wanna get to, but there are barriers to that. 
And that's what we're wrestling with. That's the goo stage of going from a caterpillar that we know that we can't be, we can't do the caterpillar thing anymore and just stay low to the ground and keep our heads low and walk really slow. We have to go to th through the metamorphosis. We have to build up the strength of our wings in order to break through and actually fly. So we're in that, that awkward stage, that messy stage where we have to have these conversations that we've never been having, we've never had before, we haven't been trained to have before. We don't know how to have them without a bunch of mistakes. But honestly, if we're not having, if, if we're having the conversations and we aren't making mistakes, then we're not having the right conversations because this is a learning experience for everybody who can be a part of the conversation. So there's a tremendous amount of benefit here. And it's less about, oh, as in DEI just dropped out of the sky. That's not what happened. DEI is already here, but it's completely wild west and it's not working. It is not working. And now we're utilizing certain terms to polarize within our workforce. That's absolutely unacceptable. We have to be in alignment. We're a team and leaders can really foster that because it should, this polarization within our workforce, when we're looking for ways to benefit everybody within our workforce, cannot be on our watch. When I think about Putting everything that you just mentioned onto a bumper sticker, there's two business impacts that stand out. If you want to have people that are eager to join your organization, you better make sure as a leader that your organization looks like the population that it serves and the customer base that it serves. If it doesn't, you're going to have a hard time finding the people that are going to want to work with you. And then on the customer side, if you want to continue being relevant in your customers' hearts and minds, you also need to be representative of the communities that you serve. If you want to become an elite organization, if you're not mirroring the communities that you serve and internally you don't look like the people that you want to hire, you're going to have big problems in ever getting to that status. Before we wind down, let's, let's put some frameworks together. When we open the conversation with how do you become an elite team? What are the things that you need to do? You, had, you talked about some of the game-changing experiences that you had that really helped you push the envelope in terms of creating high-performing and elite teams. So if we break all of that down into a framework, what are the things that leaders need to be thinking about from your perspective that's going to help them be more effective in creating high-performing teams? You got to own where you are in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because one of the outcomes of DEI is psychological safety. And what's the outcome of psychological safety? That gets to the innovation that we were talking about, that you're getting retention of a variety of talented people who deserve to be there if they just, we can remove the barriers and allow them to thrive and listen to them. They know what needs to be fixed. So that takes us right back to psychological safety. And so that's where we're in team environments where there isn't a fear of retaliation, that there isn't a fear of humiliation for bringing up ideas, feedback, criticisms of the projects or how we're working or whatever it is, that we're basically rallying around similar problems and wanting to do the best for our customers and for the cohesion and the success of the team. We have performance goals. And so how we get to them needs to have inclusion baked in. And we need to be measuring ourselves on what the inclusion practices are in order to keep ourselves accountable. Otherwise, we're gonna keep going back to our default of unconscious bias, and we're gonna keep messing up. And we're gonna keep causing the same kinds of problems. 
So building into our processes and our systems of inclusion is a key way to keep ourselves accountable. So what it comes down to is if you want diversity, equity, and inclusion as a result, it must be part of your process. It doesn't happen by magic or accident at the end. It must be strategic and intentional throughout how you do the work. Where can people find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. DEI Communications Kim Clark is my URL. Also, I have a website and it's kimclarkcommunications.com. You can also find me on social and TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. All of those links are on my website, kimclarkcommunications.com. And you can always get the book, The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Stuff, family-friendly version. I think the listeners are gonna get uh, a lot from the conversation once they hear the chat that we had. The big thing that I take away from this conversation is this. Being elite is a choice. You have a choice between communicating or not. You have a choice between being transparent or not. You have a choice between being a compartmentalized workplace or a workplace that is inclusive. All of those are choices, but one set of choices will put you on the path to being elite. That's what I picked up in listening to this conversation. And the alternative is being left behind. So it's up to you as the listener to decide which option is appealing to you. Do you want to be the place where you're making the right choices, you're creating the right kind of culture where people are flocking to? Or do you want to be the kind of organization that is the equivalent of the phone book? It's up to you on which way you're going to take. It's either the choice between being relevant or irrelevant. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you liked the conversation, leave us a review. Tell us how we did. And then tune in next time for another great conversation where we are interviewing some of the best practitioners in North America on what you can do to become an elite and high-performing organization. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.